Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. This is a joke I heard last weekend. Why do cows wear bells? Because their horns don't work. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download the culture show that gives you everything you need to win this week's dinner parties. You just got a joke from Elliot Bergman, half of rock duo Wild Bell. That'll help break the ice. The band's on tour now and all autumn long. Later, actor Colin Firth tells us about his movie Arthur Newman. It just came out on DVD. And if that sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of one of our favorite past episodes. Indeed. It also features conversation with food writer Michael Pollan and chef Bobby Flay. You can see why it is a favorite episode. So cast your mind back to April when, as at any dinner party, we started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The NFL draft gets underway tonight at Radio City Music Hall in New York. The city of West, people are helping each other recover from the disaster. The dedication of the George W. Bush Presidential Library and Museum. Now for something you haven't heard, we are joined by Rehan Harmansi. She's the deputy editor of Modern Farmer, which is a magazine dedicated to food and farming. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, we have all heard of the new share economy. Now you can actually rent different kinds of animals, including chickens. Wow. Chicken rental. Not for petting, I'm assuming. No. I mean, you know, urban poultry keeping is sweeping the nation, but what if you don't really want to commit to the chicken? What if you just want a part-time chicken? (laughs) This doesn't sound right at all. Does this mean there's, like, chicken pimps in the world? Like, like, is there a well, rooster somewhere with, like, a mint green suit and a cane? <laughs> I hope so. I hope so, too, wait, actually. Wait, now I like the idea That's again. what I really hope. What is, um, so, wait, what is this thing? So you're renting the chickens, I guess, to get eggs? Is that the idea? Yeah, to get eggs, to experience the joys of keeping chickens. In Australia, you've been able to do this for the past few years, but it's come to America over the past year. And, yeah, there was a bunch of new startups called, like, Rent-A-Coop, where you get to try out chicken ownership. Why are people so into it? I mean, yeah, eggs, but they're not that expensive eggs. Yeah. That is a really good question. I personally do not harbor the chicken-owning fantasy, but I talk to a lot of people who do, and I think there's just this bond between, like, human and chicken that you can only really understand when you have your own coop. See, it's funny that you mentioned Bond because these chickens are going to be rented by different people. And in the future, they're going to have difficulty forming long-term close bonds with other people (laughs) and chickens. Yeah. This is chicken abuse. I mean, that is a fair point. This is the worst (laughs) thing that's happened to chickens since nuggets. (laughs) (laughs) So on that sad note, Rehan Harmansi, thanks for the small talk. Thank you, guys. (laughs) And now, time for cocktails. Oh. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's like history is a humidifier, but instead of water, it mists your room with booze. Refreshing, I think. (laughs) Maybe. First, the history. This week, back in 1982, headband and leg warmer manufacturers the world over rejoiced. Now, the folks at your dinner party won't know why. Thanks to our friend Michelle Philippi, you're about to. Some of the biggest trends of the 80s were thanks to Jane Fonda. At that point, she'd already been a sex symbol fashion model, she'd won two Academy Awards, and she'd angered a big chunk of America by visiting the enemy during Vietnam. There was just one realm left for her to conquer, fitness. Ballet had been Jane's workout of choice, 
But after breaking her foot, she turned to a new exercise regimen called aerobics. Soon, she had her own aerobics studio and a best-selling workout book. So best-selling, it gave a guy named Stuart Carl an idea. Carl produced VHS videotapes about home improvement. You played them on these expensive, newfangled contraptions called video cassette recorders. Only about 5% of households even owned one. But Carl thought a video of Jane leading an aerobics class might sell a few copies. He was totally wrong. Are you ready to do the workout? Jane Fonda's workout sold more like 17 million copies. To watch it, people had to buy VCRs, arguably launching the home video boom. Aerobics became a nationwide craze, launching the fitness industry boom. And Jane's workout uniform launched a neon-colored spandex and leg warmers boom. Jane went on to appear in 29 more exercise videos, including one last year at age 75. She was the first non-engineer ever inducted into the Video Hall of Fame. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm talking with Tom Sigsby at Mohawk Bend here in Los Angeles, the birthplace of Jane Fonda's workout. Not, not this bar, but this city. No, it was actually here. That's not true. This would be no place to exercise. No, certainly not. So you've heard the history. What drink are you going to serve along with it? We're doing a drink since uh, this is kind of the advent of uh, you know, video cassettes becoming more popular. We can do a drink called a VHS, a vodka hibiscus strawberry drink. But that's my acronym, the VHS. <laughs> so basically we're trying to get a, a somewhat healthy cocktail that you certainly shouldn't drink while you're working out, but it might not be that cool down. Uh, vodka being a clean spirit, and then get some strawberries, some agave in there to keep your... Heart level's pretty even instead of sugar. Some hibiscus for heart health, a little lime juice, you know? I've never heard a cocktail described as healthful. Oh, absolutely. They're all healthful. Um, so let's watch this being made. You're starting, you've got lovely strawberries. A bit of strawberry. We're going to cut off the tops, throw those into a little glass here. Add to that some good-sized basil leaves. I'm assuming this is all going to get muddled up nice. Mm -hmm, of course. At this point, you could put this in a blender and pretend that you're uh, just really into juices. Absolutely. Uh, did a little bit of agave, which is uh, probably the best sweetener you can use. Uh, low glycemic index, you know, nice and good. This is the most L.A. drink ever so far. <laughs> At least the way you're talking about it is very L.A. And then from there, we're going to add probably the least healthy but still delicious, a nice organic lemon vodka from a distillery in downtown L.A. And then also from the same distillery, Fruit Labs Organic Hibiscus Liqueur. Some fresh lime juice, about three-quarter ounce of fresh lime juice. To offset the sweet a little. Shakety-shake. Strain that into a nice fresh ice glass. It's very lovely looking. It's kind of reddish pink. Good hues, indeed. Care to try? Yes. <laughs> no, I'm just going to walk away. <laughs> All right, I'm going to sip this. Oh, man, I love it. Yeah, it's both sweet and tart. It's got, like, some nice aromatics in there. What is the, what's the aromatics coming from? Mostly the basil. The one thing is, though, like, it should... I think you have to serve this with more ice so that the, the glass is sweating. Sure. And, Brendan, I should note that technically Jane Fonda's workout originated in Beverly Hills, not in Los Angeles. Ah, yes. You don't want to deny Beverly Hillians their historic achievements. Never. That's right. And I wanted to tape a bartender over there, but when I uh -huh. got to City Limits, 
They said my body fat index was too high and they wouldn't let me in. It's terrible. <laughs> That's right. Well, they have doctors there that can take care of that for you. You would think. <laughs> Apparently not. All right, folks. Well, our website takes everyone. You can find it and all the recipes for our cocktails at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. Today our guest is Molly Ringwald. In the 80s, she starred in classic teen films like The Breakfast Club. Last year, she published a book of short stories, and she also sings. Her new album of standards came out this month. Here she is to tell us about it and her list. My name is Molly Ringwald, and the name of the album is Except Sometimes. You know, most standards albums, you can count on Embraceable You or My Funny Valentine because they're such good songs. But I tried to pick ones that were standards but maybe a little bit more obscure and not recorded as often. And then, of course, the last song is much more contemporary and I recorded it because it was in The Breakfast Club. I think that there's not even one original chord <laughs> in the song. <laughs> but I thought it was a really nice way to kind of integrate who I was or what I'm known for into who I am now. So just like Don't You Forget About Me, I have another list of songs that I think are so great that they could be standards and should be standards. I want you. Elvis Costello, I think, over the course of his career has written so many songs. But one in particular that I love is I Want You. I want you, did you mean to tell me but seem to forget? I want you. It's so emotional and it's a song about obsession. I remember when the album came out and somebody said that it sounds like an obscene phone call. He knows that this woman is cheating on him and stepping out on him. And it's everything that you would say to that person. It's the thought of him undressing you. Are you undressing? It's just relentless. You know, there's not a lot of musical variation in it, but it just really gives you that sense of, oh my God, he, he's got to get out of this place. <laughs> he's just going to go mad. My number two song, I was thinking of the Portishead song, Give Me a Reason to Love You. That song is already so bluesy and sexy. I think it's just sort of a natural to turn it into a jazz ballad. Give me a reason, give me a reason to love you. like perfect voices. It's hard because I've been singing for so long. I started out with my dad who wanted to make sure that I didn't sing flat. So he always said, if you have to pick one, pick sharp, you know. But that's not really what I enjoy. I'm very interested by flaws and, and emotion in voices. And I think that she has one of those perfectly emotional voices. My third song was written by a lyricist-composer named Franklin Bruno, and it was recorded by Jenny Toomey. The song is called Only a Monster. When I said I loved you, I'm only a monster could 
That song is basically about, again, a failed relationship. And, you know, the, the lyrics are, are sort of like, um, you know, I know you're not a vampire, but only a monster could basically, you know, treat me the way that you've treated me. I love when somebody is singing something that's incredibly harsh, but with a really, you know, beautiful, pure voice. You know, along with the idea of standards, there are certain songs that I think belong in the vault. The vault's basically songs that are great, but they have been played and sung so much, you never want to hear them again. The songs don't disappear, they just stay in the vault for 200 years. <laughs> for future generations, you know, but I don't need to hear Hotel California one more time. The guest list from actress Molly Ringwald. Her album of standards is called Accept Sometimes. And ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a break, but when we return, Bobby Flay answers your etiquette questions. This will definitely be the first time that anybody asks me how to behave. It's the Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Brendan Francis Newham. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, Mike Wolf of TV's American Pickers tells us how he came to love trash. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Yes, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is Bobby Flay. He's the owner and executive chef of immensely popular restaurants, and he's been the host of several television shows, including the Emmy-winning Bobby Flay's Barbecue Addiction, his new barbecue guide and cookbook of the same name came out this week. And Bobby, welcome. Uh, this, this will definitely be the first time that anybody asked me how to behave. <laughs> I'm just going to say that straight out. That's never happened in my life. You're really? a bad boy, are you? Don't you have to keep order in the kitchen? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah I guess that's true. you got to browbeat people. You know, I think you will be able to give guidance to people, even looking over this book. Sure. At one point, you declare, if you use lighter fluid, you're fired from the grill. Totally. So let's start there. For the yeah. millions who still use lighter fluid... What's wrong with lighter fluid? Because it has an awful taste. We all grew up as kids eating hamburgers that tasted like lighter fluid. Yeah. We actually thought that that's what they tasted I know, like. I, they don't. <laughs> it's like I used to mm. think spinach was just frozen wet paper towel right, texture exactly. from my mother. It's comforting. But then I learned that it actually can taste good. Um, I have a personal question, by the way. I, have, I feel like I'm not kind of enough of a, a guy because I don't grill. It's probably true. But, <laughs> thanks, Brennan. But like, I don't have two things, which is space and time. I'm just sort of dissuaded from getting well, into this. I'm going to have to cut you down on both of those excuses. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> because I feel like if I have the time, you're probably going to have the time. And it doesn't take a lot of space to grill. I mean, how much space do you need? Do you have any outdoors? You live in L.A. I know, well, it's true, but I live in an apartment, you know? Okay. Not a ton of space. But you could set up like a little Weber on your driveway, Yeah, totally. Right? Absolutely. But I mean... What? But is that, <laughs> that going to be any good? I mean, it's a tiny little doohickey. L let me just say this to you. Grilling is common sense cooking. It's flame with some grates over it. I mean, sure. it doesn't matter what the outside of it looks like. I mean, yeah. some of them are, you know, $5,000 and looks like you can drive them down the block. <laughs> and then, you know, there's like the classic Weber and they basically get the same results. It's They're not cooking it. You are. 
And that's what people kind of, I think, get intimidated by. Right. I think Rico, when he was complaining about time, was trying to make a case for lighter fluid, which we're just not going to have it. That's not happening because <laughs> in 15 minutes, if you have a chimney starter, which costs like $12 in the store, you can have perfect coals lit. Yeah. Perfect. No excuses. Zero. All right. Well, you've, we've told Rico how to behave. Let's answer some of our <laughs> <Okay>. uh, <laughs> listeners' questions. The first one comes from someone calling themselves Tongue Fried in Southern California. Nice. Tongue Fried writes, I'm a spice wimp. Example, when this local Mongolian barbecue place asked me to specify spice preference from 1 to 10, I asked for a zero. No joke. <laughs> oh, man. This is a source of great shame. What should I do when I literally can't stomach food I'm offered? Related, any secrets for building tolerance to that kick? Mm. Well, there's no substitute for experience in anything, and that includes eating spicier foods. There actually is a point where something might be too spicy for anyone, including myself, and I eat a lot of chili peppers and, yeah. and whatnot. So You're known for it. But every once in a while, like I'll go to some authentic Thai restaurant. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. actually an authentic Thai restaurant where all the clubs are there, right on Sunset Boulevard in yeah, West, yeah. West Hollywood. It's called Night Plus Market. It serves Thai market food. It is insanely hot, <laughs> okay? So you eat it, you're like, oh my goodness, this is so hot. And then you wait for like 30 seconds, and what do you do? put the fork back into the food and you start eating it. <laughs> and it just, that's what happens is you sort of almost kind of need it. Yeah. It's almost like this good drug, something that you actually start wanting, even though it's kind of hurting you a little bit. Well, what's interesting is, uh, you know, you're famous for bringing spices into right. food. But you, like me, I, I, I have an Irish yeah. background. I always joke that I have a Mediterranean taste but an Irish stomach, and I get killed. The aftermath. I guess what, what Tongue Fried is also asking, if you encounter something you just simply can't handle, what's a polite way to pass on it? You just don't eat it. <laughs> I mean, there, there's always that. And then, and then what happens is people, when they eat something that's too hot, what do they do? They drink a lot of water or beer. Wrong. Yes. You need dairy, yogurt, or some milk. That's what works. So if you're going to a Thai place, pack a milkshake. 100%. All right. All right, there you go, tongue fried. Here is Damon via Facebook. We don't know where Damon's from. Damon writes, Our office frequently takes part in potlucks. Lately, I've gotten a lot of pushback through the grapevine, of course, that my dishes have meat, gluten, cheese, etc., Am I on the hook for creating dishes that meet everybody's potluck preferences? No. Right. Make what you want to make, especially if it's a potluck. So if it's a potluck, there's going to be tons of dishes, right? Yeah. I, one would think. By definition. So I, first of all, gluten-free, obviously, it's a very serious issue. People have you know, celiac disease. disease, and they have to be careful, obviously. I was watching the Today Show this morning, and now there's the South Beach gluten-free cookbook. <laughs> and so now it's become a trendy thing yeah. to do. Which yeah. I have to say, I mean, I'm not a nutritionist or a dietitian by trade. I don't like the idea because you're not going to be getting the nutrients that you need. For people that are just deciding to do it because they think it's the trendy thing of the moment, it drives me crazy. Yeah, yeah of course. They think they're going to lose weight. But I also have to say that like, I feel like chefs, of course, this is their art. You know, They want to have as wide a palate to work with as possible. Does that, right. But does that trump politeness, I guess, is the I question. I mean, you know, listen, as a chef, we're also, I mean, we're cooks, we're servants. We're making food that people are paying to eat. So, you know, the customer is obviously very important. And I think if somebody wants something that's gluten-free, I'm not going to question why it is. It's not my place. I'm not yeah. going to say, well, I'll make it only <laughs> if you really can't eat it. You bring, know? Yeah, bring your doctors. You know, <laughs> listen, I cook with a lot of cilantro, and people have an aversion to yeah. cilantro. A lot less than they used to. But when I opened yeah. Mesa Grill 22 years ago, I had the most people with cilantro um, allergies in the history of the world in my restaurant. <laughs> I was like, just tell me you don't want it, I'll, and I'll cook without it. It's yeah. totally fine. And so I think you have to find the balance. Yeah. Right. So And also, I think this is a pot luck. Yeah, right? exactly. Everyone brings in a pot. <laughs> yeah. Don't eat that luck one. luck of the draw. Yeah, just eat something else. Yeah. Exactly. Stick with the pirate booty. Or I'm going to eat the one that that guy brought, I can tell you right now. <laughs> All right, Damon, There's... you have a fan if Bobby's invited. There you go. All right, we have another question. This one comes from Allie in Minneapolis. Allie asks... 
What do you do when you're a guest at someone's dinner party and the food is terrible and they ask what you think because, you know, you're Bobby Flay and they want to hear compliments? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> it's like you never look fat in that dress. Yeah. One thing I can tell you right now, whether it's a chef, somebody cooking at home, no one wants to hear the real story. Yeah. Tell me really. <laughs> it's great. That's what I think. All right. Here's Jeff via Facebook. Jeff writes, how do you get people to leave at the end of the party? Please help. They are still here. <laughs> Thank you for coming, everybody. Good night. Yeah. <laughs> really? I mean, here's the, here's the, that's a great question, actually. Yeah. Because we've all been there. But there is a point where your guests are not being polite. Mm. Mm-hmm. I just start washing dishes. Yes. Right. That's, that always, is- that's always a good sign. Now I'm like, does anybody want to help? Then I'm like, everybody's like, where's my coat? Yeah, where are my <laughs> nope. keys? I exactly. got to get out of here. I do not. When I worked at a cafe years ago, I had a special uh, mix I called my go-home music. <laughs> and that, that's basically when the metal would come on. Sad. Exactly. That's, that's when the Ozzy Osbourne would oh, be turned okay. up. <laughs> you can always play uh, Last Dance. That's right. Really, really loud. I want you guys to listen to the vocals of this. Sure. <laughs> Check the lyrics, people. Well, Bobby Flay, thanks for coming by sure. and telling our audience how to behave. Thanks for having me. Bobby Flay, his cookbook, Barbecue Addiction, comes out this week. And speaking of barbecues, Bobby told us about the time he taught our nation's president how to grill. You can hear that story at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. TV host Mike Wolf travels the country digging through junk and finding priceless objects for a living. Today we overhear him tell the tale of the first gold mine he struck. My name is Mike Wolf, and I'm the creator and host of a show on the History Network called American Pickers. And I've also got a children's book that just came out called Kid Pickers Guide to Picking. And basically the book teaches children when they can find things they can learn about their community's history their family's history, recycling and repurposing. So here's a story from my own youth about how I stumbled into this crazy profession. We lived in Joliet, Illinois. I was one of those kids that walked to school. I had a single mother and we didn't have a lot of money. And I can remember when I walked to school, I could always see the older kids down the street and they all had these incredible bicycles. You know, just watching the motion, them having fun. I wanted one really bad. I wasn't even old enough or even big enough to ride one, but I knew I had to have one. My mother couldn't afford one, and uh, she shut me down. Now, one day I was walking to school, and it was one of those really large garbage days where everybody threw everything out. So I'm looking at all this stuff, and I notice there's like two or three bicycles, and I'm thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that someone actually threw out bicycles. It was like full-on Wild West days, gold rush. I mean, time stopped for me. I don't care how old you are. When you want something so badly, and then all of a sudden you're thrown into it, there's nothing else. I was looking around like, okay, I mean, these are these really free? And I actually went to one of the houses. I said, excuse me, are you throwing away these bicycles? And they said, yes, we are, young man. And I was like, okay, game on. Have you ever had just one chocolate cookie? Have you ever had just one brownie? Have you ever ate just one potato chip? No. So when you're standing there and you're looking at all these bicycles, why would you want to just take one? So I grabbed the bikes 
and I decided not to go to school that day. I was like, I'm too busy to do that. And I drug all this stuff home and it took me, gosh, at least two or three hours because there was a lot of parts. And then I'm standing in a sea of bicycles. I was in heaven. So I'm standing in the front yard, very proud of myself. I'm like, I climb Mount Everest here. I'm planting the flag. And then I turn around and my mom is there. And it's just like this good, the bad, and the ugly moment. You know, she's got the hairy eyeball. I'm looking at her. She's looking at me. She got a call from the school, and she was, like, beside herself. She had to get home right away to find out what happened to me. She's like, what are you doing? I couldn't think of anything else other than I'm having a—this is my bicycle shop. I'm starting a bicycle shop. She was mad. She was so mad. She was like, stay in school. But if you're going to start a bicycle shop, then what I will do is I'm not going to pull my car in the garage anymore. The garage is yours. That's where you can put all of this stuff. I remember that just like it was yesterday because, you know, her her car was everything to her. And we're in the Midwest. The winters are bad. So she had to actually go out there and scrape the windshield and do all these things that she normally wouldn't have to do. She did that for me. That one moment where she gave me the space to put things and she understood how much they meant to me meant everything to me. Mike Wolf. His new book is called Kid Pickers, and his show American Pickers airs on the History Channel. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download from American Public Media. So, Rico, this weekend I and a lot of readers are going to be talking about Rachel Kushner's second novel, The Flamethrowers. Yeah, I've seen the reviews. There, the word stellar comes to mind. Yes, pretty much. same as her first novel, which was a finalist for a National Book Award. The problem with The Flamethrowers is it's the kind of book you want to talk about, but it's so dense that it's not easy. Mm. So when I spoke to Rachel this week, I asked her to let me try and summarize it. Okay. All right. So this book is about a young conceptual artist named Reno who moves from her home state of Nevada to New York City in the 70s, where she starts dating a wealthy, older Italian artist. And through him and her love of motorcycles and speed, she becomes entwined not only in the art world of the 70s of New York, but the Italian anarchist movement in Rome. How's that so far? I think that's a good description. It is a hard thing to encapsulate the narrative arc and the different components of this book. So thank you for doing it for me. I would just say she's never named, but she's referred to kind of sarcastically as Reno by a character to whom she's drawn. And he says it kind of to tease her because she's from this provincial city in Nevada. Mm. But but she is actually unnamed. We don't know her name. Yeah, I feel like they give her some. It gives her some street cred that she's from Nevada. But was I miss? No, I think that's probably exactly right. But it's both. It means they're kind of tagging her as being from a smaller town. Mm. But it also happens to be the case that Nevada, New Mexico, Utah, certain parts of California were the locale for the land artists to yeah. make their work in the West. Yeah. But she says at one point that you have to move to New York City in order to move west and do these kinds of conceptual art projects. You moved to New York City and returned out west. Did Was that necessary to become a kind of a hot young author, do you think? Well, <laughs> well um, I did live in New York City, and I am from the west. That said, um, you know, moving to New York, yeah, it was a useful education for me, but I don't know 
if it was the same in the sense of being a writer, I think you don't have to be from New York to understand the conversation, if you will, that takes place among writers and in history uh, in regard to literature. But I met a lot of artists when I moved to New York, and I think that that probably informed the writing of this book, Yeah, um, the personalities that I encountered, and a certain swiftness and sense of humor that I'm attracted to, and I think which helped me form the characters of the book. The book takes place, a lot of it takes place in the 70s art world. Yeah. Um, it also takes place in World War One era Italy. Yeah. It also goes into great detail about motorcycles, the manufacture thereof. Yeah. Rubber plantations in Brazil. Yes. That's a lot of work. <laughs> I'm just thinking from a practical standpoint as a writer, how do you set about doing the research for that? You know, it's funny. When you were enumerating those things, they, I guess they do sound sort of disparate and even a little dissonant, but I was thinking, what a <laughs> lucky person I am because those are all things that came up for me as interests as I was writing the book. I was interested in futurism and I was interested in the history of industry. I've always been interested in speed and machines and technology and racing, cars, motorcycles. I used to ride motorcycles. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I know about in a natural and kind of organic way and I mm. didn't have to research. So this book does follow the art world. And there are cocktail parties with artists and, and fun stuff like that. But it also bristles with social unrest. Yeah. It's about action in the streets, not just on the canvas. Can you tell us about what was going on in Italy and America around then? Well, revolt, I think, and insurrection are themes. Yeah. And what happens when a lot of people decide at the same time that um, they're going to participate in a kind of illegality. And that happens in the book as it did in real life uh, in New York City during the blackout of 1977 in mm -hmm. July of that summer. And it also happens in the book in Italy on March 12th of 1977. That was a kind of crucial moment the day before um, someone had been killed in Bologna and all of these people who were part of the what was called the autonomous movement, descended upon Rome and there were 100,000 people in the streets and the police tear-gassed everybody, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of things happened. Why this book right now? It does feel part of the zeitgeist a little bit. And I'm, and I'm wondering, have you given any thought to that, to why this seed started to germinate in this time for you? Yeah, um, I don't know. I'm glad you said it's part of the zeitgeist. I, I, I didn't know if you were going to say it does feel a little out of step with uh, no, I feel like there's themes times, of, I'm I mean, kidding. I, I don't want to... I mean, I could claim that I had prognosticated Occupy and the riots in Greece and the anti-austerity movements and mm. the Arab Spring. I could say, on the other hand, that it was just pure luck that I wrote a book that has to do with insurrection and then that we've experienced a series of political tumult and turmoils in this world. But I think maybe neither answer is correct. The first one is dishonest. I didn't prognosticate all of these things. But the second is maybe willfully naive because writers, you know, ideally are sensitive to what's going on around them. There's a chapter in the book about this anarchist street gang. And I read that in L.A. and um, a lot of my friends were there, people who were involved in the Occupy movement. The people who came to that reading thought that it was about them. <laughs> uh, but when yeah. I wrote it, I wasn't thinking of them. It's just one of those things that happens. Rachel Kushner, thanks so much for coming by. Thank you for having me.
Enrico, the book is filled with lots of beautiful passages and lots of neat imagined art pieces. Oh, yeah. Like at one point, Reno uses her motorcycle to draw lines in the desert. Nice. Uh, another character wants to take a picture of every person in the world. Whoa. You could call it Facebook. That what that piece of art. <laughs> that's true. Is Facebook an art piece? Because yeah, maybe now I like it all of a sudden. If that's true, <laughs> you should click the little thumb. Uh, folks, coming up, food writer Michael Pollan explores Earth, Wind, and Fire, and actor Colin Firth tells us about his side career. I'm a neuroscientist. Oh, the things you'll learn when the dinner party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. This is an encore broadcast of a show we aired in April. Coming up, you'll hear food writer Michael Pollan get existential about cheese. It's worth a repeat listen, people. It is the right kind of cheesy. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, namely British actor Colin Firth. He leapt to stardom in the 90s, playing Mr. Darcy in a BBC production of Pride and Prejudice. He might be best known for his Oscar-winning portrayal of King George in The King's Speech. And his latest film, Arthur Newman, just came out on DVD. In it, he plays a man estranged from his family and job who fakes his own death and hits the road to restart his life as someone else. When I met Colin back in April, I noted that assuming new identities is what he does for a living. Yes, I'd noticed. Um, it was, uh, in fact, I think it's quite a common thing to fantasize about, you know, shedding your old life, entertaining the question as to whether you can reset your life completely. Perhaps actors have that a little bit less just because we take those excursions on a regular basis. You know, to me, there's a lot more than meets the eye in, in what this guy's doing. He leaves behind this failed version of himself in order to go and manufacture a new one. Although I find myself meditating on the, on the idea that the old identity perhaps wasn't that authentic. You know, that he's not shedding the real self in search of a manufactured self. The old one was pretty manufactured anyway, and trying on different identities, which is what he subsequently does with the woman he meets on the, on the road. Over and over again. Uh, yeah, indeed. You know, they break into people's houses, try on different identities and have sex. And actually, it's by putting that mask on that they are able to have the intimacy they're afraid to have as their selves or their apparent selves. But let me do the dime story psychology I sort of buried in this question, which is how much are actors doing that? Well, we are doing it. You know, in one way, we're telling lies, pretending to care about things that aren't real and we don't care about. And this, none of it, what you're seeing really happened. And even if it's a factual story, it didn't happen with these people like this. It's, you're not actually the king? This is horrible. Right, it's smoke and mirrors. Um, but on the other hand, there's something truthful there. And I think there's a way in which putting a mask on can actually free you up to express something very authentically and very truthfully. Well, let me ask you kind of a reverse question. How hard is it to take off that mask? You know, because I can imagine, you know, there are certain roles where it would be very intoxicating being somebody who is, for instance, a heartthrob or something like that. Do you have a, have you found yourself in that kind of situation? It's a very... It's a very strange and antisocial thing to do. I mean, even if you're playing characters who are composed and well-behaved, it can be a little bit of a wild zone you go into. This is why a lot of actors don't fit very well with the rest, you know, with social norms. I've noticed. You know, I go to work and I might be expected to cry, scream, take my clothes off and, you know, get physical with somebody I've only just met, male or female. And, you know, that's not a day in the life of most people at the office. It can be a challenge. You do have to be able to come home from it. Uh, we are by no means at the sharp end of that problem. 
you know, I mean, I'm sure if you are a, a firefighter or a soldier or an emergency room doctor, you have much bigger issues that follow you home. But nevertheless, it is something that doesn't just clock off because it's six o'clock automatically. This what, is, can you give an example? Is there a role that you felt was particularly hard to shake off? Gosh, um, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes there's an interaction with, with a character, and you can get this, just anybody finds this when they read a book sometimes. You, you feel particularly drawn to a character, and it, you, find it, you actually can have a hard time with the fact that character isn't out there somewhere. You think, I, I, I know this guy. I, would, I think I could run into him somewhere. I, I'd, I'd want to meet him. I think the hardest one for me, this is probably cheating a little bit because you might not know the work, but this was back in the mid-80s, and I did a film about the Falklands War called Tumbledown, and I played a guy who was not only a real person, he was my exact age, and he had a very severe injury, and I got to know him very well. And I got almost out of my depth in how involved I felt. And you, you, it can affect the way you, things you dream about, and, and that went on for more than a year after the thing was over. And then more recently, I think, actually, Single Man. That's the Tom Ford film you were in? Yeah, I didn't, I haven't shaken it off in a way, but that wasn't something I necessarily wanted to shake off. I actually felt very drawn to that character in a way that I find entirely comfortable. What, what remains of that character in you now? Well, I don't know if it, what, I, you know, he's someone who has reached a certain age and things have happened in his life and he's written himself off. And in doing so, he finds life strangely calling him back. I drew a lot from that. There was something very moving to me about a man who's broken but actually conducts himself with decency and gentleness and dignity. It stays with me. We have two standard questions we ask everyone in our show. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question should we not ask you? What's the question you're kind of like tired of being asked? Well, anything that begins with, I have a standard question. <laughs> I can't help it. It is. It's standard. No, no, no. It's, I, I don't, I'm not taking. I don't take it personally. And I, I, you can just feel your muscles tense when that happens. All right. No, I have to say, actually, any question that begins with the words. And I noticed this years ago. And once I identified it, I found it quite liberating. And this doesn't just apply to people being interviewed. This applies to anybody. Any question that begins, "What's it like?" <laughs> is actually almost impossible to answer. People try to come up with answers. Because how do you know what it's not like? Well, what's it like to be American? What's it like to be a journalist? What's it, I mean, where do you begin and end that? You know? Here's our second question, sort of the reverse of that one. Tell us something we don't know. And this can be, it's more of an order, really. And it can be about anything, about yourself, something you haven't said in an interview, or some, a piece of trivia that would blow people's minds. Uh, I don't. I'm an open book. You know it all. I'm sorry. That, in case you said that, there's, there's something that I hoped you would talk about, and I hope you still will. You, I found out, are the co-author of a scientific paper about the neurological differences between people who have differing political views? You see, that could have been a good answer, but you do know that. Uh, but nobody else no, does. No, no, no. I am, I'm a neuroscientist. This is true, but I thought people would assume that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Well, this started semi-flippantly. I had this wonderful engagement to guest edit a radio show in the, in the UK called The Today Programme. And I think it's one of the best things, not only on British radio, but in British culture, actually. I love The Today Programme. It's current affairs, it's discussion, it's news. And one of the things I thought would be interesting was to make a study of people's political preferences, but make it a clinical study. You know, I said at the time, I basically want to find out what's biologically wrong with people who don't agree with me. You know? <laughs> well, what was it? What, what turned out to be the case? Then it probably poses more questions than it answers. But what they found were that the right amygdala was enlarged in people who called themselves conservative, an overwhelming percentage. 
The amygdala is something that is studied in studies of the way the brain reacts to fear. Now, you know, that is simplistic. And there have been people who've taken it and really run with it and saying, I told you conservatives were full of fear. I don't think that is, you know, probably does the whole study a huge disservice just to reduce it to that. Um, in the risk of not starting a political war, maybe we should let people just read the paper. Read what they want. The other thing is, of course, we don't, brains change according to nurture. So they would have to do what they call a longitudinal study, which means they're going to have to take a baby look at the brain and then look at them again in 30 years, find out what happened to them in the meantime and see if the brain changed. So whether it's cause or effect, whether it's because your, your, this bit of your brain is born, you know, enlarged, determines your politics or whether it got enlarged because of your politics, we don't know. We'll, we'll talk again in 30 years. Yeah. So, Brendan, just to clarify, he was Mr. Darcy, he won an Oscar, and he's a published scientist. There's a pronounced swelling in the part of my brain that governs jealousy. <laughs> I can see it. You should ice that thing. Yeah. Oh, wait, is that my inferiority complex growing? I don't know. All right, and now it's time for the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a dinner party, the food. So, Rico, you know who Michael Pollan is, right? Of course. Author of The Omnivore's Dilemma, for those who don't know. That's right, and many other books about food. He's partially responsible for America's heightened awareness of stuff like factory farming and healthy eating, etc. In some ways, I, I wish I didn't know about the factory farming part, but yes, he has made quite an impact. Yeah. Well, he has a new book out called Cooked, where he examines the art and history of cooking by setting out to learn how to cook. Which sounds fascinating, but yeah. then it occurred to me, Michael Pollan didn't already know how to cook? <laughs> I was a cook. I mean, we did cook, and we probably cooked more nights than we didn't, but I was a kind of careless cook, a thoughtless cook. So you also suggest that cooking is essential to who we are as human beings. You quote James Boswell, right? Yeah. Human, humans are a cooking animal. We're the cooking beast, yeah. And then you link that up to a larger hypothesis, the cooking yeah. hypothesis. Cooking was, it turns out to have been very important to our evolution we would never have left the world of the apes if we hadn't mastered the power of fire. Yeah. Uh, and Richard Wrangham is an anthropologist and primatologist at, at Harvard who's put forward something called the cooking hypothesis. You know, there's always been this question among anthropologists, how did our brain suddenly get so big? And you're talking biologically, like how did our brains yes, grow it, it so large? Yes, it actually got large. <laughs> yeah. If you compare us to an ape of the same size, we have a much larger brain mm. and a much smaller gut. They have a lot more apparatus to digest food. And the reason they need that is because they're eating lots of raw food. And that is hard to digest. At some point, we figured out a way to get more nutrition from what we were eating, more energy. And that was cooking. And as we acquired this incredibly energy-dense diet, our evolution, natural selection, kind of reoriented our focus from the gut to the head. And that allowed us to uh, do language and culture and all these yeah. wonderful things. So you cleverly divide your book up in, based on the, the classic elements, right? Mm -hmm. There's fire, water, water air, air, and, and earth. earth. Yeah. And so maybe we could just like hop through each of these and we can talk about sure. one little fact. Uh, so I started with fire. And fire is the first element of cooking. And for fire cooking, I really looked at barbecue. I mean, what's the closest thing we have now to traditional fire cooking, which is to say whole animal, slow-burning wood fire, a lot of people yeah. hanging out, having a big party afterwards. And you actually relate barbecue all the way back to kind of animal sacrifice. Yeah, ritual sacrifice. It's really interesting when you look, you, you go back and you look at the Old Testament or the Greeks, and they both had ritual sacrifices mm -hmm. of animals. 
they both kind of moved in the same direction. First, they were sacrificing people, and they said, "Yeah, let's just give them an animal." And, this is it. and then they said, "You know what? Let's just give them the smoke from the animal, yeah. so we can eat the animal." I thought that was a really beautiful thing. You must, uh, the gods can't consume meat, right? Right. They yeah. said, "Hey, if the god gods don't need to eat meat, because if they eat meat, then they need to eliminate." And it raised all these theological issues. All they really want is the smoke, and that's the only way we can get it to them anyway. So. Yeah. Let them have the smoke, and we eat the meat in a big party. Okay, after fire, you move on to water. You learn how to cook with water using pots, and you talk about how the cooking pot is, quote, a second human stomach. Yeah, well, amazing things happen when humanity invents uh, ceramic pottery. It's long after fire. It's not till yeah. about 10,000 years ago that we learn how to use clay, fire it, so that we can boil water in it. And when you can do that, there's all these other things you get to eat. Um, you couldn't eat grain, for example, very well with a fire. You could toast grain, but that didn't really work. Again, as well too as... much work to break down for our bodies. Exactly. Right and grain has got nutrients locked up in these polymers, and they need a slow cook in water. I mean, think about oatmeal. And so this is a, a tremendous advance because once you've got pots, you can use vegetables in really interesting ways. And, and you talk about how the pot is also responsible for extending our, our human family in that older people could eat food that was broken down in pots and exactly infants right. could survive. And infant, you yeah. could wean infants because before this, you needed teeth to eat. And so you, had, so you couldn't wean babies as early. But now that you can soften food and grain, you can keep old people alive longer and that yeah. has a huge effect on society. And you can wean earlier and have more kids. And so it's a really key technology. All right. So let's move on to the air section of the book where you learn how to bake bread. Bread is 80% air. And you say at the beginning of this chapter that baking is, quote, the carpentry of the food world. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Carpentry of cooking. I thought it was because – and I'm intimidated by carpentry. I'm a gardener where Mm. there's tons of margin of error, right? You really can't screw up too badly in the garden. And I thought that's what baking was. It's, it struck me as the rocket science also of, of cooking and that you needed a scale calibrated in grams. Yeah. And, and uh, if you didn't get everything just right, it I find it collapse. a little intimidating because of the, I, I did yeah. too. I was terrified of baking. But it turns out it isn't really that way. Once you've done it a few times, you do it by the senses. I mean, you feel that your dough is billowy and has air in it, and you taste it, and you see it's getting a little sour, and you see how big it's gotten, and you really rely on your senses. So it's a lot more improvisational than I thought. That was a surprise. All right. Well, the last section of your book is Earth, and you explore the world of fermentation. You make beer, you pickle cucumbers, and you also make cheese with Sister Noella Marcellino, a.k.a. the cheese Cheese nun. nun. Yeah. Uh, She's a nun, microbiologist, and cheesemaker. And she says something really interesting. She suggests that cheese should be included in the Holy Eucharist. What's that about? It's interesting. The Eucharist is when you take communion, which I don't do as a Jew, but I've watched it done, you're basically working with fermented products. Bread, which stands for the flesh of Christ Mm -hmm. and the body of Christ, and wine, Mm -hmm. uh, which stands for the blood. And it's very interesting. They're both... Fermented. Fermentation is a transcendence of the given uh, into something and an elevation into something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and she was saying, well, there's a third fermented food that belongs in there, and that is cheese. And I said, why? I said, well, cheese is about the dark side of life. It reminds us of our mortality. So what does she mean by that? Well, it's a lot like flesh. Um, All right, the is, texture It of lives and dies. It smells. Mm. It is about decay. Uh, you know, talk about dust to dust. It's the rot of 
animal flesh in a way. And I, I sort of didn't see it. But I think she, she's saying you either add that or swap out the bread hmm. um, and that this is a wonderful um, uh, symbol of, of uh, the human body. So I'm sure now you carry all this information with you after your research. I'm wondering, do you carry anything with you from before your research? Like does Michael <laughs> Pollan still have a guilty pleasure? Does he still Cool Ranch Doritos? There's not one kind of modern I like Cracker pleasure. Jacks actually. That's okay. uh, one of my favorite junk foods, which right. is caramelized popcorn. I mean, I think the um, – I would say the prices have gone way downhill. <laughs> um, they're just paper now. You know, you used to get a toy. Yeah. So. This explains that fake tattoo on your hand right now. Yeah. <laughs> Good one. That's an old radio trick. <laughs> All right. So, Brendan, Cracker Jacks, that's yeah. the junkiest food he will cop to. <laughs> I was hoping for Captain Crunch, you know, right? at least. Red Bull Slurpees. Yeah, Red Vines. What we'll call it, blizzards, Red Vines. Anyway, Michael did have a lot more to say. At one point, he compared regional barbecue preferences to Jewish kosher laws. Hmm. You can hear the whole conversation at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And that concludes this Encore episode of the Dinner Party Download. We'll be back next week with a new show, including etiquette from Project Runway's Tim Gunn. Our favorite Jackson Musker is our favorite and only assistant producer. Mm. Our interns are James Delahousey, Davey Kim, and Brittany Martin. Thanks to Charlton Thorpe for engineering help. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to are returning from this week's dinner parties. And this time it's power pop rockers Valley Lodge. Their latest single would have been a great summer jam, except it just came out from their wonderful new album, Use Your Weapons. This is called Go. Bon Appetit. That's the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Thanks for listening. Whatever. What's going on, man? I just had a piece of cheese and I realized we're all going to die. Hmm. You know? How about a Cracker Jack? Yeah! <laughs>